sportsmanship, confidence building, positive attitude, learning from failure, and success. You'll find it all here. This is Sports Psychology Today with Dr. Andrew Jacobs, Digital Edition. Welcome to the exclusive digital edition of Sports Psychology Today. I am sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and you can hear this and all of our other podcasts on winnersunlimited.com. Today we're going to be talking about a topic everybody has to do with if you play sports. It's the topic of a slump. Why do negative performances happen? There are all kinds of reasons why they can happen. Expectations from others, internal demands we place on ourselves. It doesn't matter what the sport, how often you play, what level you play. You're going to have a day where you don't do very well. And consequently, when you don't play well, you can get frustrated. Lots of athletes get mired in slumps. They get stuck in it for a long time, and they can end up giving up or quitting or stopping their sport. So we're going to discuss this topic today in length. We're going to find out why they happen and and talk about some of the ways you can handle it. And now we're going to be talking with Dr. Angel Brutus. She's a clinical and sports performance consultant down in the Atlanta, Georgia area. And as you know, as we've been discussing, the, the topic of slumps happens at all levels of life and sports. And especially in the world of sports, it can happen out of the blue. All of a sudden, you're playing great, and then things go to go poorly. You can be playing tennis and win the first set six love and then lose the next two love six, love six, and you don't know what happened. You can be a baseball player, and all of a sudden, you can't hit the ball. You can be a golfer, and you're shanking everything. So slumps happen for all kinds of reasons. So we're going to explore really what a slump is why it happens, and how to solve it this morning. So, Dr. Brutus, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me. It's it's my honor. You know, I've been working as a sports psychologist in the Kansas City area for 36 years, and this is a topic that comes into my office all the time. I've addressed it with Olympic athletes, professional athletes, collegiate athletes, high school athletes, youth sport athletes. It happens to everybody. And it doesn't matter what the sport, it doesn't matter what the, the sex, it happens to everybody, men, women, girls, boys. Why do you think slumps happen, Dr. Brutus? Uh, well, to be honest with you, I, I think, you know, slump in terms of the term- terminology, one of the things that I tend to do with my athletes a lot is, is to not even use that term. Um, because when you think about it, a slump occurs, um, it's a natural occurrence when you, when you deal with performance in any aspect, whether it's in sport or other aspects or domains um, for performance. And so um, I think because it's natural, uh, you know, it gives an opportunity to really provide feedback for areas that may need improvement. Um, and, you know, it depends on how you approach it going forward um, in terms of, you know, you can have a stellar performance in one moment, like you mentioned earlier in tennis, where you could be up a set and then the next couple of sets is, you know, downhill from there. Uh, and so if we embrace the idea that it is a natural occurring thing that's bound to happen in a sport, then it can help us kind of bounce back from it quicker. I couldn't agree with you more. In, in our book that I co-wrote with uh, Royals Hall of Famer Jeff Montgomery and Olympic swim coach Pete Malone called Just Let Him Play, Guiding Parents, Coaches, and Athletes Through Youth Sports, our third chapter is, is called Embracing Failure Can Lead to Fun. And I try to encourage everyone who participates in sports, and I've I've dealt with this forever in my career here on the radio as well as in my practice you're going to fail you're going to screw up you're going to have a down day it's part of the competition it's part of the environment it's part of life so rather than looking at it as such a negative thing and getting caught up with it I try to help people understand why it's happening and I think if you take a better understanding 
and an acceptance that you're going to screw up and fail, then I think you don't get mired down in that. Do you agree with that? I definitely agree with that. And then also it, it also depends on, you know, how well you know yourself. And so if you're able to really observe what your performance uh, patterns may be, then there's actually an opportunity to maybe anticipate a little bit more of what your, uh, where you are in your process. And so um, if you notice, uh, you know, a player might have an on-fire game and you notice that that's pretty typical depending on, you know, where they are in their process, um, and then the next thing you know, a couple of games later, they have this, you know, shooting slump, say, in basketball. Um, if you are able to really start to observe any potential for patterns, then you're able to, to better kind of prepare um, and really know what to expect. You know, I think that's where it starts, that, that where it starts is at the youth sport level when young athletes get involved in sports and they start to learn fundamentals and skills. And I think a lot of this depends on how they're taught to deal with a mistake, how they're taught to deal with screwing up, and to not be scared of it, to not be yelled at or de- degraded or insulted, but that to be coached. And I have found that, that a lot of the, especially the Olympic and professional athletes that I've worked with for, for years, a lot of them have learned to deal with that because they had good coaching as youngsters. Some of them didn't, and some of them had to learn to overcome that. But a lot of them had good coaching as youngsters where they weren't insulted and degraded. And then what was interesting is, but inevitably, and I think you'll, let me get your opinion on this, inevitably, though, they're going to encounter a coach along the way, along their journey, who's going to be really negative, who's going to be condescending. And they have to have a strategy to deal with that. Otherwise, they can fall into that negativity pattern. Don't you agree? Absolutely agree. Definitely. And so the early sporting experience definitely influenced the way, you know, as athletes begin to, you know, matriculate and grow and pursue their sport, you know, beyond their years. Um, I think it's important to understand what that foundation is, um, especially as practitioners working with an athlete who may or may not have had such a supportive experience growing up. Uh, that really helps you to understand where you're going to have to meet that athlete to be able to move forward or bounce back, so to speak, Um, especially if um, there has been exposure to the degrading side of things. And, you know, as you said, it's, you know, the longer an athlete plays their sport, um, it increases the likelihood that at some point they may or may not, you know, encounter a coach or someone who, who might take that more negative pressure type of approach. And so, if that foundation is there for them to be able to focus on the process, to be able to, you know, demonstrate those resiliency skills that they've learned over the years, it helps. But for, you know, a lot of athletes that I've encountered, they've not had that experience early on in their uh, sporting careers. And so it, it really is about helping to expose them to, hey, there is an alternative to the way that you go about doing this. You know, if you do have a coach who's, you know, extremely hard on you, very negative on you. I know that your critical self is also at play as well. So, you know, at some point there has to be some supportive voice that's in there. And so, you know, really been able to filter through those messages that are being received. You know, you, you hit on something there. You said focus on the process. And I, I have many sayings that I use with my uh, clients and, and the teams that I consult with. One of them is foe versus four, FOE versus FOR, focus on effort focus versus focus on results Mm -hmm. and i found that so many people you know we live in such a materialistic society and we're so focused on how many games we won or what our average is or what score you had or what time you swam or ran in or whatever it might be there's so much emphasis on the result but what i found is if we can spend more time focusing on the effort and the process as you said 
it's going to give you a greater opportunity and a greater chance for success. And then when you do fail, what I found is that you don't get mired in that negative negative rut where a, a slump can really happen. Absolutely. Uh, one of the, the, the things that I emphasize a lot with a lot of the players that I work with is, this, you know, that concept of temporary. Everything is temporary. And, you know, Ken Revisa says it best, and he, he talks about working with athletes on focusing in the moment, um, really embracing this idea of process, because it's one thing for us to kind of say it to them. It's another thing to really start to, to develop that skill. And so, you know, having these, you know, opportunities to chunk down the moment. So as opposed to, you know, thinking about an entire inning, you think about that, those 15 seconds that you're right there, be where your feet are. That's one of my favorite slogans that I use quite a bit. And I know it sounds cliche, but when you're able to chunk things down, make it simple and do these cues that you practice over time, then it really does help in the heat of the moment during competition, whether you're experiencing, um, you know, an underperformance or, you know, whether you are on fire, whether it's successful or whether it's failure, you're starting to treat those things the same because all of those moments are so temporary. I had a young lady in my office yesterday who's a swimmer, a high school swimmer, very, very bright young lady. She has a, a 4.6 GPA, and of course, four O's straight A's. I, I'll, I'll never, when I went to school, we didn't have extra credit or APA classes. You either got an A or a B. It amazes me how you have people, you know, young people today, it's four O's straight A's, but four seven is, is, is even better. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But so she's a very bright young lady. And so she said, Dr. Jacobs, I have a question for you. Does the dumb jock syndrome really exist? And because we were talking about something related to to an issue of slumps. And I said, yeah, it does. And she said, so I'm in trouble, aren't I? I said, (laughs) smiling, I said, yeah, you are, because she's smart. And what I found, Dr. Brutus, is that when you have a smart athlete, oftentimes they're the ones who end up in a slump because they start thinking too much. And they start trying to figure everything out so much, they get so caught up in their head, they have trouble relaxing. What do you think about that? Absolutely. So I, uh, you know, it's funny because I am one of those individuals. I can analyze anything until it it can't be analyzed anymore. And that is a huge um, issue that I've run to, especially working with uh, collegiate athletes who, you know, are working uh, not just in sport, but have like that rigorous um, academic schedule. And depending on the institution that they're affiliated with, they have a reputation for rigor. And so uh, you hit the nail on the head when you have those highly critical um, high analytical minds that really want to break things down in such a minute level. As a practitioner, I know that I have to be extremely mindful of who I have in front of me from a personality characteristic wise. Um, and so anytime that I have someone who's very cerebral, then what we do a lot is we do more body work, right? And so it kind of takes them out of their, their head. But in order to get to that point to where they can execute that during competition, there has to be a lot of practice that's in place. And so it becomes more of a natural habit for them so they can be able to access it in those moments of performance. And so for my, my highly critical, my, my cerebral athletes, I do a lot of more existential body work with them um, to really help them understand that the mind-body connection is something that can can go very far for them. Excellent suggestion. I agree with you 100%. I had a very famous baseball player who played in the major leagues for 20 years. He was a relief pitcher who actually held several several records. And on the bill of his cap, I started working with him with the Royals back in 1990 in his second year. And uh, I had him start keeping a journal. 
which he kept throughout his entire career. In fact, his sons, two of his sons play, uh, one plays Major League Baseball, one's in the minor leagues right now. And on the bill of his cap, I had him write this, one game at a time, one inning at a time, one batter at a time, one pitch at a time, kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. And he wrote that on every cap he had. He played for several teams. And we're still very close to this day. He's been retired for a while. And, he, and we talk about that all the time. He says, Doc, you know, one of the things you always told me, try to keep it simple and just focus on the process, focus on what I'm doing. And because he, he said earlier on in his career, he would start trying to figure out why did the umpire not call that a strike? That was a strike. And then he'd get so upset. Then he'd get tense. Then he'd get negative, and then he'd start throwing balls in the dirt, and then he would walk a guy, and then he would throw poorly. So we tried to get him to get out of his mind, recognize what was going on, and try to work on relaxation. Don't you think that has a big, is a big component with the success of these people? I do. And, you know, the concept of being able to psych someone up and psych someone down, it really depends on their baseline, right? Um, so really getting the opportunity to, to work well before competition season starts so that, you know, the, the athletes themselves become, become extremely more aware of where they are um, in terms of, like, you know, the concept that we use in our field, uh, the, you know, the individual zone of optimal functioning, right? So not everyone has the same kind of arousal needs. And so being able to really work with your athlete, understand not just from the cognitive standpoint, but from a physical standpoint, too, in terms of the baseline heart rate and things of that nature, um, coupled with, you know, examples or observations of when they really kind of reach that peak area of performance and, and matching that all together, um, it really does kind of put the athlete back in the controller's uh, seat when it comes to um, pursuing their, their excellence in their sport. Um, and so, you know, the relaxation piece, uh, it really depends on where their baseline is. You know, uh, I've worked with an athlete who uh, had a propensity for extreme anxiousness, right? Um, and then I've also worked with another athlete who, would, you know, would be yawning, like, right before a game. And so it really just depends on, you know, where their makeup is physiologically to, to be able to really identify where to start with them um, and how that matches up or couples with their, their best performance opportunities. My great uncle uh, was my role model. His name was Hurst Jacobs. He died in 1970. He was the winningest trainer in the history of horse racing when he died. He won 3,596 races. And he told me a quote back when I was in junior high, when I was visiting him during the summer. He said, I want you to write this down. I want you to use this. It, the quote is, sports is the greatest theater in the world. Everyone knows their part, but no one knows what will happen. And that's sort of been my mantra throughout my 36-year career. Because, you know... Dr. Brutus, you can go out there and be the best prepared and the best focused and the best motivated, but you still don't know what you're going to encounter. And that negativity is probably going to happen at some point throughout a game. So if you would, give us an example of an athlete you've worked with who's come in to talk to you, you know, when they've been in that negative mode and that slump per se. And how do you try to get them out of it? You could give us a specific example for us. Um, a really quick example would be uh, working with an individual who is, you know, the sport of basketball, who has, definitely is highly identified as a shooter, right? Um, and working with shooters, it's funny because they all, a lot of them say the same thing, which is, I'm way more than that, right? Which, so I embrace that. 
So what do you mean you're way more than that? All right. So uh, working with an individual who was in a, a pretty decent shooting slump, so to speak, um, even though I, I kind of bring them out of using that term, number one, because then that really helps them to understand that that's a temporary uh, state of being. Um, but then also. Right. But excuse me, but they but they come in telling you they're in a slump. Yeah. So you've got to get yeah. first. First thing you're telling us is then you're trying to get them out of that mindset, which is great. Right, right, right. And so I validate what the experience is, but I help them to start changing the language that they're using, right? Um, and then we break it down and look at, okay, so for this particular part of the period, you know, this is what happened. However, how did you compensate for that? And then they start to, they started to discuss how they, you know, because they knew their shots weren't falling quite well, they started relying more and being more aggressive on defense or being more aggressive in trying to get the rebound or um, being able to look further down the floor and see how they could get other teammates involved, right? And so basically what we did was we, we identified this idea of, you know, this individual, number one, did not want to be labeled only as a shooter. Um, but then also validating the fact that they really did have a well-rounded game. And they, you know, when they looked at it and looked back at the film, they did recognize that, hey, my shots weren't falling, but I was a major contributor to the team. So that's the other aspect of it is when you start to identify opportunities to switch the talk from mirror talk, as we say in PCA, to window talk, which is how are you contributing to others, right? Because if it's a team-related sport, there are so many other assets that you bring to the court or to the field um, that, that still help to um, embrace this particular process. Now, it doesn't make have any control over the outcome, but it can definitely influence it, um, especially if you're not so bogged down into thinking about, oh, my shots aren't falling, I'm not worth anything, right? Because that's the other aspect of it. A lot of our athletes tend to tie their value or their self-worth to their performance. And so being able to separate the two is, is amazing to see the progress that happens. That's a great example. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about Kobe Bryant. And, you know, two years ago, he, uh, two and a half years ago now, he broke a record and I always ask a lot of clients this question. You know what record Kobe Bryant broke two and a half years ago? And they typically say, uh, made more baskets than anybody or more shots. And I'll go, no, he missed more shots than anybody in the history of the NBA. And he played another year after that. And so I'll say, why do you think he, why do you think he has that record? And they go, because he shot the ball a lot. I go, yeah, he did shoot the ball a lot. But also because he wasn't afraid to, to, to miss. Mm-hmm. You know, he had that. So he wasn't afraid. And, and that takes me to an example of him. When the Celtics uh, and the Lakers played in the NBA championships a few years ago, I was flying out to Los Angeles and I had to change planes in Dallas. And I was watching the end of the first half and, and he was not shooting the ball well at all, Kobe Bryant. He, he missed, I think he only had like four points at halftime. I remember I got on the plane and then I got off in L.A. And as we landed, the pilots at home of the, the uh, NBA champion L.A. Lakers. And they were down by like 10 or 12 points at halftime. And I found out later that Kobe Bryant was the star of the, the second half. And the next day, there was a long interview with him that I heard on the radio, and he talked about what happened. He said, you know, at halftime, Phil Jackson would always, you know, we talk about what was going on. Then he always gave us time to reflect and think about ourselves. So I asked myself, you know, why am I missing so many shots? Am I, is my shot off? No. You know, well, what can I do to be a better teammate? How can I be a better player? I need to, to play better defense. I need to throw out more assists. I need to guard better. I just need to play better as, as a player. And consequently, in the second half, I think he made it to something like 24, 26 points and ended up being player of the game, the MVP, and the Lakers won. And so I think that's exactly what you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Very much so, because, you know, you forget um, that, especially when you feel like others have kind of placed you in this box where you're expected to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and, you know, there has always been like this underlying thing, specifically with a couple of players that I've been working with over the years, where, you know, others see you as this, but you know that you're fully capable of multiple options available to you. Um, and so being able to have that, you know, self-belief in what your capacity to do and your capacity to grow and demonstrate as opposed to uh, leaning toward this idea of trying to live up to the expectation of this X, Y, and Z title that others are giving you really helps to, to develop the player as a whole. Um, and it's a relief, so to speak, because they're able to uh, embrace their total self and not necessarily have to always lean towards meeting others' expectations to a, to a certain degree. And then that also takes them out of their own you know, driver's seat, so to speak. You just hit on the, the last topic I want to address with you, and that's the issue of expectations of others. It's funny you brought that up because that's exactly what I was thinking I wanted to ask you. So expectations, especially for if you have a young athlete, say a teenager or, or a younger athlete working with you, how important does this, do the expectations of others play on them and then end up affecting them in terms of possibly going into, into their performance, whether they're in a negative or positive performance? Um, I think it can serve as a great catalyst for development, especially at the younger ages um, for novice athletes who really are still more so in that learning phase. Um, they've got a lot that they are trying to, you know, juggle in terms of still doing the skill development, you know, tactics and techniques starting to learn a little bit about decision-making depending on the age and the sport. Um, And so being able to value the feedback that's received from coaches in terms of what is expected for them in terms of their performance, but also it's a great window of opportunity to really start to help athletes develop a sense of awareness in terms of being able to gauge for themselves where they are in their, uh, their sport performance process. Um, And so, you know, there are things that you can do like performance profiling where you'll have the athlete kind of assess their own performance uh, based off of, you know, the tangibles and the intangibles. And then also be able to have the coaches do the same and identify if there are any gaps in between. And what that does is it does a couple of things. It really helps the athlete to see where they are compared to where their coaches think they are. Um, and those gaps that are in between there is the opportunity to really help close the gap by fostering communication with their coaches in terms of what is it that I need to do next in order to improve in this area that you rated me X, Y, and Z number, right? And so I think one of the things that I, I found to be extremely helpful, especially with younger athletes, is to build that confidence in their ability to ask questions and be able to understand, but that also takes a lot of um, reliance on the coach-athlete relationship in terms of the rapport that's being built, um, in terms of the, the level of trust, because, you know, athletes who don't trust their coaches' feedback can be, that's a recipe for disaster in terms of development. I don't think you could have hit it any more on the head than that. that that's great uh, input and, and great you know, communication that you're sharing with us today about really how this works. And, you know, in the end, we all want to play sports to have fun, especially at the youth sports level. And and winning, to me, is something that comes into play as kids get older. It's become more and more of a problem for younger athletes because parents and coaches are so caught up with results. But as you shared earlier in in our interview, if you focus on the process, 
focus on the enjoyment of what you're doing, you're going to have a better opportunity to succeed in the end. And I think that's the message that I'm picking up from you. And that and that's going to help people maybe even not just get out of a slump, but prevent one from happening. Mm-hmm. Want to thank Very you. So. Yeah, listen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This is a great, great comments, great feedback for everybody. Dr. Brutus, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they reach you? Absolutely. So they can reach me on social media. Uh, all of my platforms are at Angel Brutus One, which is A N G E L B as in boy, R U T as in Tom, U S as in Susan, the number one. Um, they can also visit my website at www.sportpsychsynergy.com. I want to thank you so much this morning for joining us today. This has been great feedback, and I hope you get some calls from people listening to this and, uh, and, and continued success in your career. I, I very much appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Jacobs. It's been my honor. Okay, thank you. That wraps it up for this digital edition of Sports Psychology Today. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Remember, you can hear more great interviews, calls, and discussions on my website, which is winnersunlimited.com. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. You've been listening to Sports Psychology Today with Dr. Andrew Jacobs, digital edition. Find out more at winnersunlimited.com.